homie. I'm getting tired of dudes just getting over on the rasa. This is for the rasa. This is the reality dysfunction. Hi, my name is Maria Savala. I'm uh, from Michigan, live in Decatur, in northern Aslan, holding it down with Dan Sosa. Malix, I live in Brooklyn. <laughs> Arena from Redlands, California, fighting through the fires. Yeah. This is Ernesto Morales coming straight at you from Prescott, Arizona. Uh, this is Dan Sosa coming coming from Saginaw, Michigan, in my new office. Francisco Lopez, straight out of the mobile. Carlos Hernandez coming from San Anto. The two ten, the deuce dime. Juan Carlos, not straight, but gay out of one. <laughs> <laughs> Counting people and chinga la migra. That's what I said. <laughs> Tell your story about what happened with so, your work today. Yeah, I was t- sharing that um, I am counting people. I'm an enumerator for the U.S. Census here in D.C. And a Latino man from his car saw me. And he, he you know, I have my ID. I have a bag that says census. And I have a color shirt. But I was in shorts. And I have a big phone where I take all the, you know, entries. And the guy, you know, asked me, you know, like, who was I? Was I really part of the census? And he th- he thought, I said, yeah, I'm with the census. And I showed him the back of my phone that says census 2020. And he says, you look like La Migra. So that just like, are you, are you kidding me? I am literally wearing shorts. I'm hoping not to look formal, uh, but the ID and the phone and maybe I, you know, wash my hair that day so it was just the guy really thought i was la migra so imagine we're trying to count our people but they think it's la migra knocking on your door right that's the it just blew me away at the end you know i talked to the guy and he filled out his survey somebody else's survey and he really hooked me up you know once he knew i was in la migra but it's really concerning to me that people are, you know, thinking that the census uh, enumerators might be the migra knocking on your door. You right, because you, because you could be like a narc, right? Mm-hmm. That that that's just a testament to the amount of uh, fear. Yeah, that's out there in the community. Yeah, you do not have to have to open your door for ice. Yep. Right. Not right enough. Yep. You're not legally bound to open the door for them. No, no. I mean, it, and I, Juan, Juan Carlos, that reminds me of an experience I had a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. So at my community center, we distribute like personal care items like shampoo, body wash, toilet paper, which is a hot commodity a while ago. And, um, you know, we put together bags for people. And the other day, you know, we got this guy that, that called and he just called with like, he's like, I want a bag right now. You know, like this attitude, real bad attitude, like, and he hung up on me. And I was, you know, just trying to like, you know, I'm usually nice on the phone, whatever. And then he called back and talked to somebody else that works here. And he was like, yeah, I was talking to some white dude on the phone. I'm like, do I sound like I'm white on the phone? 
You sound like you're white on this podcast, bro. Do I? I Y'all got that Michigan accent? It comes out. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm fucking with you. You don't sound white to me, homie. Okay. But, I was hurt. I was hurt by that. Yeah. I know. Oh, Pete's here. Hey, what up? What's going on, Pete? Yeah, can you guys hear me okay? Yeah. Yeah. So we we already went around and, and did our um, mic check, our introductions. And so um, I'm just going to uh, introduce you real quick. And then um, I'm going to throw it over to you. And then what I'm hoping that you can do is just kind of tell us about your project, uh, how it came about, um, you know, uh, what it is that, that you're planning on doing, uh, a little bit about the work that you do with Rock right now. And then um, we're going to uh, we'll come back in. Um, you know, with some questions and, you know, just generally have a, have a discussion though about, you know, where all this leads to how important it is for black and brown people to vote this fall, that kind of thing. Does that sound good? Sounds good. All right. Hey everybody. I'm blah, 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 blah. (laughs) That sounded really white. I I know. (laughs) Ditto. (laughs) <laughs> Hi, how you doing? <laughs> hey, everybody. <laughs> All right. Oh yeah, bueno. Oh yeah, bueno. <laughs> uh, you're gonna edit that part out, right? <laughs> no, probably, probably not. <laughs> um. All right. Let's give it another shot. Okay. Hey, I want to thank everybody for joining us today. Uh, my name is Ernesto Morales, and I'm back uh, again this week with the rest of the dysfunctionals. We're gonna be talking with. Uh, Mr. Pete Vargas, who is the state organizing director for Restaurant Opportunity Centers Michigan and the campaign manager for Rock Michigan Vote. Uh, He's going to tell us about some exciting projects that he has going on that have to do with getting the vote out in November for black and brown populations in the state of Michigan, which has uh, recently become a battleground state. So, Pete, why don't you tell us what you've been up to? Yeah, thanks, uh, Todd, for having me and all of y'all for, for joining us today. So I work for an organization called Rock United. It's a national organization that was created out of a tragedy, uh, very much like we're, we're feeling right now uh, in this COVID environment. 9-11 happened, and most folks don't know that on top of the World Trade Center in Tower One was a restaurant called Windows on the World. And... It had about 300 restaurant workers, and it was a union shop, by the way. About two-thirds of those folks lost their lives on that day, many of them immigrants, many of them indigenous to this hemisphere. And the the third that didn't lose their lives were folks that didn't uh, work that day or just got off shift or were on their way to work. What ended up happening was some organizers got together to create a worker relief center for those uh, restaurant workers who needed some help and support during that time, because not only did they lose their uh, livelihood, um, they lost their friends and close family to this tragedy. And so it, what it did was it lent itself an opportunity for us to understand more about the industry, uh, the restaurant industry and things that were happening. Since that time, we've become a national advocacy organization for restaurant workers creating Restaurant Opportunity Centers United, Rock United. And uh, we realized that if we wanted to make systemic change in in the service industry to create living wages, to eliminate sub-minimum tip wages for workers, 
as well as uh, create opportunities for upward mobility for women and people of color, and also benefits like earned paid sick time, as well as uh, systemic changes like eliminating workplaces that let uh, sexual harassment run, run rampant. Um, we needed to, to bring all the folks to the table that were involved, including restaurant workers and employers. And so now we are in 10 different states right now, working, uh, doing workforce development, doing advocacy, changing policy to do what we can nationally to, to change the system and, and be the change uh, that we want to be, that we want to see. So one of the things that we have, have come to fruition that's been super effective is getting restaurant workers engaged in policy movements. Most of our folks within our communities hear about news and politics, and it's a foreign language to, to, to many. And we're, we're even taught, you know, don't, don't talk politics at the table or don't talk politics at the office or don't talk politics, uh, you know, in, in, at the bar even, right? You know, so there's never been a good time for our folks to talk politics, even though we're the ones that are most affected by policy. So we've been making great strides at getting our communities that are by, by and far predominantly women and people of color. About 70% of the restaurant industry is, uh, is, is people of color and, and, and women uh, and single mothers. So there's a lot of uh, issues of equity and um, gender balance and gender equity that we work with on a regular basis. And so in 2018, uh, we created what was called a in Michigan. And One Fair Wage uh, was a campaign to eliminate the sub-minimum tip wage for workers and to bring them up like everybody else to a regular minimum wage plus tips, as well as uh, to offer earned paid sick time. There's a Michigan constitution that allows for community organizations or an individual even to exercise their Michigan constitutional rights to make their own law. And so what we did was we followed the rules. We were super ambitious and were able to get 500,000 signatures from Michigan voters that said, you know what, we want to raise the minimum wage to $12 an hour uh, that included a step, you know, step system over a period of six years to make sure that uh, restaurant workers were included and that they were at par with everybody else to be able to make $12 an hour plus tips. Um, what we didn't, what we anticipated uh, was also a fight back from, from corporate businesses. And when I say words like the NRA, most of y'all think of the National Rifle Association. But there's a bigger NRA out there. It's called the National Restaurant and Lodging Association. They're the 10th largest lobbying association in the country. We're talking right up there with Big Pharma and right up there with you know, Homeland Security and military contractors, okay? They are way bigger than the NR, than the National Rifle Association and much more powerful in their influence, both on, both on federal and state legislation. Well, they spend millions of dollars uh, influencing the GOP, the Republican-controlled uh, House and Senate in, in Michigan's government and lobbied and paid restaurant workers to get on video cameras saying, we don't want to raise, we don't want to raise, right? It's amazing what uh, what folks will do uh, when they're when they're facing strife, and the irony of it is that they actually paid restaurant workers one fair wage uh, wages to fight one fair wage.
what ended up happening was the legislature was influenced by the NRA and the Michigan Restaurant and Lodging Association and convinced the legislation to also exercise something that's in the Constitution, which is called the ability to adopt and amend a law. So rather than letting voters have the opportunity to vote themselves a raise on the ballot, legislators can say, oh, okay, well, we don't even need to go that far. We'll just make it a law. We'll make it our own law, right? Sounds legit. But what they actually did was broke the Constitution because in the Michigan Constitution, it says that you cannot adopt and amend in the same legislative cycle, which would be lame duck time, which is that time that, you know, the, the sessions end and the, 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 the new legislators are elected. They did it in the same legislative cycle. So we're still in a fight right now uh, over the constitutionality. And we're working with the attorney general, uh, Dana Nessel, and we're working with the governor. We're trying to do what we can because what they did was they, they adopted it and they took out the, the raise for restaurant workers. Right now, restaurant workers right now in, in Michigan, which number in the 700,000, make $3.62 an hour. In this COVID environment, even to get unemployment, your unemployment is based on three sixty-two an hour, not a regular minimum wage. So we understood that not only was it an attack on direct democracy, but it was also a form of voter suppression. Now, we could have walked away, but we, did, we decided to face it head on, double down, and take it to the streets. We ended up creating one of the largest uh, field campaigns in 2018, uh, which we had never uh, done yet in Michigan from our organization. We raised money. We worked with celebrities and uh, community leaders and trusted messengers and uh, reached out to over 400,000 people and in, in Michigan voters, restaurant workers, service industry workers, labor, interfaith, we were able to influence over 100,000 voters to get to the polls uh, and register to vote. We ended up making a 20% bump in the propensity of voters that we were able to influence, which when you think about it, when we talk about the indicators of performance of how uh, the, the likelihood of, let's say, a mailer that you get or a phone call that you get, or a text message that you might get, or an advertisement on social media, they measure successes in half percentages of influence. Maybe one or two percent. Maybe, depending on how many times you, you, know, you make contact with that person or what have you. But to make 20% in, in, uh, increase was, was quite a feat and, and also quite an achievement. But we didn't uh, just go, you know, willy-nilly at uh, likely voters. We went to the trenches and we went to the barrios and we went to the, to the neighborhoods and we went after all the folks that nobody was talking to, folks that look like us, folks that are the bottom 30 percentile of voter, voters. And what I mean by bottom 30 percentile, I, I use that just as a measuring indicator to say that if three elections had happened, chances are there was a, a 0% to, to 30% chance that they might have voted in one of those elections. Out of the 456,000 people that we did outreach to, we were able to connect with them at least two or three times in different touches, whether it was text message, phone banking, door knocking, lit dropping, um, rallies, you name it. Uh, those were all some of the things and tools that we used to reach those folks with trusted messengers that represented African-American, Latinx, and indigenous uh, communities 
and uh, and low-wage workers. So it's 2020, and we're going to do it again. We're getting the band back together. We're working with our interfaith justice workers like APRI, which is the A. Philip Randolph Institute, which is the labor arm of the black labor arm of the labor movement. We're working with Black Lives Matter. We are in solidarity with Black Lives Matter and the movement for black lives. Uh, I myself am one of the co-founders for the uh, Rising Majority, which is the BIPOC arm of the Black Lives Matter movement here in Michigan. Uh, we are also working with uh, great folks like LACLA, which is the Labor Council for Latin American Advancement. Uh, we're working with great interfaith justice workers like Mucigen, which is a Michigan Unitarian Universalist Social Justice Network of, of Michigan. And we're, we've raised hundreds of thousands of dollars this time around. And guess what? We're, we're going after our same communities. One is we're retouching some of the uh, same folks that we uh, reached out to in 2018. We're not just a, you know, a flash in the pan, but two, we're also approaching it from a way of how do we make this different? How do we make this non-transactional and more transformational by building agency amongst ourselves? Do we just go out and vote or do we react the next time there's a, another Trayvon Martin? or a George Floyd, how do we turn this opportunity into a capacity mechanism and capacity growth opportunity for us to teach our communities how to be agency to ourselves, how to be uh, communicators to our, our, our leaders and, and, and uh, groups and communities? How do we give them technology, tech savviness, uh, messenger, trusted messenger training, not from a pimping poverty perspective, but from an empowering perspective, how, how do we give them access to tools that traditionally we you know, relied on our, our political parties to give us access to, uh, whether it's voter databases, whether it's access to expensive phone banking technologies and texting technologies that run into the tens of hundreds of thousands of dollars? Uh, how, do we, how do we teach them how to track policy and uh, run actions that directly affect policy in those communities, right? Um, so those, and, and how, do we, how do we track our success in a meaningful way where we can capture qualitative and quantitative data that is useful post-election? So we've, we've put some things in place to do that. One of the things that we've, we've done is we've, we've partnered with the uh, School of uh, Labor Studies at U of M Flint, I'm sorry, U of M Dearborn, uh, and said, you know what? We want you to put a control study in place. We want you to make sure that you can help capture some of the mechanisms, tools, and tactics that we're using on its effectiveness. We want you to help us with messaging coordination in order to figure out within our texting, how are we being culturally competent, right? How are we using our trusted messengers in an effective way? And then we also partnered with U of M Communication Studies. There's a, an advanced master's and PhD class now for my campaign with a, a class committed on helping to also capture the qualitative and quantitative data and information and tactics that we're using and to build a toolkit for post-election uh, with the control in, in, in place as well, but also to give them an opportunity to um, meet with some of our trusted messengers in our communities uh, to, to give them uh, support and agency as well uh, and training too. 
one of the things that we are really concentrating on is is capturing tactics of organizing within a COVID environment. This is not a conventional campaign. We can't just knock and be talking to workers uh, like we normally would. So we have to get creative. We have to be better communicators and better organizers than we ever have. And we have to think outside the box on creativity and, and approaches to the work by utilizing online organizing resources too. So it's forcing us as an organization to be better organizers, but it's also uh, bringing our, our brothers and sisters uh, that are, are part of our allied organizations to the table at the same time we are as we're learning some of these techniques and technologies for the, for the first time. But we're specifically targeting the BIPOC community. I mean, I say hashtag BIPOC vote. Not too many people know what, what BIPOC is. It's kind of a newer term, but I'm trying to blow it up as a black, indigenous, and people of color. So our turf of 456,000 people is 75% self-identified BIPOC communities. So we are our own, we're organizing our own people with our own messengers and our own organizers with leads within those communities. And we're giving them living wages. You know, we just onboarded 50 people this week. Those are 50 people that are going to be making anywhere between 15 and $20 an hour. Plus my, my organizing staff is, is union as well. They're part of CWA. So everybody's getting paid living wages and benefits in this process. And we're not done yet. You know, we also have 20 uh, fellows from part of our EJAM fellowship, which stands for the Economic Justice Alliance of Michigan, which is a cohort of uh, eight different uh, organizations to do social justice uh, work who we're bringing in and, and giving training to, but also understanding that they are their own leaders within their own communities and that uh, we're, we're trying to make it uh, interchangeable and, and make sure that the communication and skill sets are shared both ways and that we are uh, equipping them with tools that they can bring back to the communities as well to continue the work post 2020. And when I say that too, I also say that the work that and the approach that we're taking, we're not looking at 2020. We're looking at 2020 and beyond. We are saying, you know, what's happening uh, for, you know, uh, off election, what's happening within those communities that we want to lift up? Uh, what kind of relationship can we build? both with our allies as well as our funders, to understand that this is that moment in time that we are in a, a national health crisis. We are in a national racial pandemic crisis. Uh, we are in a moment of lifting up Black Lives Matter and Black voices, and that above and beyond, uh, one of the things that we are going to be you know, uh, continuing to push is, is Black voices during this time. And also how to, how to train ourselves, how to check ourselves on, um, being good allies as indigenous peoples as well. Um, so that's, that's pretty much it in a nutshell of, of ways of, of what we're doing. We have a lot of exciting things, you know, that we're working on. Uh, on September 17th, we're doing, you guys heard of, you know, the, the rock the vote concerts that used to happen, you know, Jay Z and all of them, you know, we can't do those anymore, right? You know, those were things that kind of pumped it up, you know. But we have partnered um, with an organization called Windy City Indie, uh, which is uh, a C4 um, organization, uh, i.e. independent expenditure, meaning they're a nonprofit, but they are able to do political organizing and, and fundraising, right? Uh, they have uh, organized a, a venue, con online concert with, um, called Blue Facta. So if you go to Blue Fecta, 
um, you will see it on, on September 17th. We'll I'll be uh, putting uh, social media posts and everything starting today. Uh, but Rock, um, Rock Michigan, Detroit Action are two uh, organizations from Detroit or out of Detroit that were picked to be recipients um, of the fiduciary outcomes of the fundraising for this online concert. And there's two or other organizations out of Wisconsin. But it's going to be a Midwest-based concert uh, with, with, with you know, headliners, uh, great musicians that are going to be super intersectional. Uh, when they came to me, they said, Pete, you know, we, we really want to, to find the voices that truly represent the essence of the work that you guys are doing and, uh, and also uplift uh, Michigan voices and, and BIPOC voices. Uh, one, of the, one of the artists that I introduced them to and we were able to video uh, to, to, to be one of the headliners was Harvey Drever. Harvey Drever is an Anishinaabe from Whitefish Bay, uh, uh, Saskatchewan, who lives here in East Lansing and an amazing singer uh, and blessed us with uh, the videotaping of his, of his singing and drumming. So you can look forward to, to that being on uh, the headline, one of the headliners. Uh, so we're, we're excited about that. Um, on October 5th, uh, we are going to do something a little crazy, maybe revolutionary. Uh, folks are really worried about the, the making sure that their ballots actually get to the city clerk. You know, we already know that Trump on high is doing everything he can to throw wrenches into this battleground state. And messing with the U.S. Postal Service is one of them. Messing with polling locations is going to be another. Uh, we want to preempt that. Uh, laws changed in Michigan. Proposition 3 is reality. What is Proposition 3? It gives opportunities, uh, gives an opportunity for voters to register and vote in the same day. Uh, and uh, for no reason. You can re register as an absentee voter now for no particular reason. You can become a, a member of the permanent absentee voter list right now. Um, so we want to take advantage of that. And uh, 35 days out from the election, you can actually go to the city clerk, say you weren't registered, register right there in a spot, and vote right there in the spot. So we are going to mobilize anywhere from five to 20 buses in five to six different cities. We're gonna be in Benton Harbor. We're gonna be in Grand Rapids. We're gonna be in Saginaw. We're gonna be in Detroit. We're gonna be in Lansing. We're gonna be in Kalamazoo. And we're gonna line up buses in front of homeless shelters. We're gonna line up buses in front of halfway houses because now returning offenders automatically get their um, right to vote and they automatically get an ID uh, or, or a license and they, they get the ability to vote again. We're, um, we're gonna line up at uh, different locations that are strategic and run folks using social distancing, using PPE, protective equipment, you know, masks and everything, and, and use the state-sanctioned uh, state standards for safety. And we're going to load buses, you know, halfway or a third of the way, and be shipping folks to to the um, to their polling locations that are going to be open on those days, as well as to the city clerk. Wow. Um, and and uh, we're we have we're working with uh, the Black interfaith communities. The community of Church and God in Christ. Uh, we're working with uh, Black Lives Matter, and we're going to be working with LACLA and organizations like Lead, who are helping to support different ways around the um, So we're excited about it. Wow, man! I know we had we had talked about this a little bit, Pete, but I didn't realize. I mean, I knew you had an extensive operation going on, but my goodness. Okay. <laughs> You all got a lot going on over there. 
there's a couple of things that you said, and I just kind of want to throw these out and then I would invite the rest of you guys to, to jump in on this. But the whole idea about um, making this experience less transactional and more transformational, I think that that's, um, I think that's, that's very interesting because that is, uh, I think it runs very counter to um, the way that we think about uh, voting in the United States, right? Or the, I mean, yeah, the way we think about it, the way we're encouraged to think about it, I think the way that it's presented, it's always presented as transactional. You know, you, you elect this person, you help get this person elected, they represent your interests, right? So, I mean, um, I guess I'm just wondering, you know, I know you talked about it a little bit, but maybe if you could speak more specifically to the, the transformational part of it. We, we've all been experienced, you know, well, you only, you only come around on election time. You know, that's the only time you want to vote, right? The, the pandering that happens every election cycle. And it's not just pandering from politicians, but it's also pandering from the Democratic Party, Republican Party, you know, you know any, any party, doesn't matter, right? Uh, we've also usually relied on them also for the resources to engage or even get a, a, a sign or material or lit, right? Um, but a strange thing happened over the last couple of years. A lot of these, uh, young folks that, um, decided to really dig into the, the funding, the back end of what happens, you know, the getting to the money before it gets to the party, right? You know, finding out where, where funders get money, right? Uh, and so, we have been very, very blessed to be uh, in that circle of faith of new and emerging BIPOC leaders that are doing fundraising all over the country, have committed themselves to building agency amongst each other. So we, we've eliminated that possibility of, of, of begging, ultimately, you know, for, for resources and attention, right? Uh, the other thing, too, is understanding that understanding how that works understanding how to to write proposals and grant i you know i wrote a 66 page campaign plan it was a million dollar campaign plan and i would have never have thought about doing that five years ago but when i sit around with 40 different funders uh that or 40 different executive directors from around the state that, that represent organizations uh that that look like us right then we know something is happening that hasn't happened before at least not in my lifetime you know and i've been in it for a minute uh so i think that the, the stars are aligning you know i think that the universe is, is saying that you know we're we don't have to do the same thing over and over again and expect a, a different outcome you know uh and we're all landing at the same place at this moment and in this time and that we've become each other's own hope as well and the despair of, of everything that we see and that we don't need to rely on uh, outside influencers in order to be able to to lift ourselves up we can use our own critical thinking our own decision-making skills our own PhDs our own MSWs uh, to write on the dotted line yes I am qualified I am able and I am capable of executing a plan with excellence and I am the best messenger to my community, right? Um, so I think that is happening, right? Um, and approaching the work differently with equity, right? Um, you know, 
our organization, you know, is very, very diverse uh, intentionally. And it, the, the, the trend of, of, you know, white, oh, white hipsters leading nonprofits that pimp poor folks and people of color, I think those days are numbered <laughs> and folks are stepping up that are doing it with, with best intentions and good intentions. So I think that's one of the one of the embers of the flames of this monstrosity of this pandemic that we are seeing right now is happening, and folks are getting it. You know, folks are getting it as long as you give, you know, honesty as well as a trajectory of how we can win together, and you can share that that vision, uh, then then we have a shared trajectory, right? And um, and it's like, you know what, we can, we can provide resources for each other. We can provide agency. We can provide technology. We can provide funding and refunding for each other. And without, without this expectation of, you know, but you better do this, or it comes with this, it comes with this uh, attachment or this metric or deliverable, right? Um, no, we, we go with it uh, because if we've been working with you. You're already in. We already know because we've been doing the work right next to you, right? Um, but, how, but how are we building together? One of the other things too that we're working with uh, is uh, um, building our own pack. Okay, um, for some that seems far-fetched, or, or, or again, also a really distant conversation, or too hard, right? Um, I'm, I'm meeting on a weekly basis now, and I also invite other, you know, Indigenous and Latinx folks uh, within the state of Michigan to become part of this conversation on Tuesdays. Uh, if you want to join the join the dialogue and conversation, uh, I'm, I'm working with several uh, organizations right now um, to to help, you know, as a, as an ally and partner and mentor for how to figure out some of this, you know, campaign stuff. Right? You know, it can get in the weeds. It can get complicated. Um, some of us take it for granted if we've been doing it a long time, and we uh, we can't be in a, a position of leaving folks behind in the process. But also, we really need to just get smart about it and say, you know what? Guess what? There is not a PAC in Michigan, a political action committee, an independent expenditure, a 501c4 uh, created yet to receive money from funders in order to do this work all year round. So let's fix it. Pete, I congratulate you in the awesome work. It sounds, I've known of Rock since 2003. And recently, I live in Washington, D.C., and I've been working uh, with Rock uh, D.C. as well on Cancel the Rent and other initiatives that are happening around here. And I would like, I love and, you know, Todd, you know, ask you the same question I was going to ask you about transactional to transformational, right? So talk to me a little bit how the importance of community organizing in the work that you're doing so that, you know, people, so that we, so that we realize that we don't need the PhDs and master's degree to do the work. We just want to have the ganas and the effort. And, you know, you want to be surrounded by, you know, funding and support, of course, but talk to me about the importance of community organizing in the work that you're doing, and then the importance of community organizing among BIPOC. Yeah, so it, it, it starts at home, right? 
you know, it, it always starts at home. Uh, we have to have, you know, deep conversations about what transformation means to ourselves. It's, it's one thing, it's one thing to say, you know, you don't have freedom or you don't have ability. Like, what does that look like? Right. You know, like what does power look like? We know what it doesn't look like. Right. Um, so part of, part of what needs to get done is to one is, eliminate the idea that you have to rely on uh, somebody else to make change within your community. Okay. That you have everything you need. If you got a couple people together to do a lot. Right. Um, but we also have to understand what strategic planning is. We have to understand uh, how to create a plan and a vision for what success or what our, you know, what we want within our community. Right. And um, once you do that, then, then you have something to share with somebody, you know, whether it's around shared values or a shared vision. Okay. And, uh, that vision, even for, for rock in our rock members, we have 13,000 members in, in Michigan across the state. Right. But the one thing that we have in common is, is that we, we want to, to change the industry. We want to build a voice for workers that didn't have a voice before. We want to change policy that directly affects us. But it has to come from the people. It has to come from the workers. We can't, as an organization and, and, and lead leaders of the organization, we can't do it. It's not a responsibility. We don't have buy-in uh, from from our legislators or anybody, our community leaders, if it's if it's not coming from the people itself, right? So we have to be better uh, better organizers in leadership development and better uh, strategic uh, planners as well to come out with a two, three, four, five-year plan on on the change that we want to see. And find those folks that have those specialties. We have such a creative community of, of artists, of, of musicians, of tech savvy folks. Data is so important. You know, find you a data person, find you a data guru and, and, uh, and teach each other how to write grants. That's just another, another thing too is literally how to, how to write grants. I've never written a grant uh, before in my life. I've written eight of them so far. They get easier the more you do it. And once you eliminate that fear, you know, then, then you can do it, you know, and you don't have to have a PhD. You don't have a, have to have a master's degree. I don't have any of those, but now that I, you know, it, it's also about relationship building. Once you truly build, start to build relationships with folks that, uh, that know some of those things, right. Then, um, you, you've broken that glass wall. You've been to places that we don't usually get access to, you know, and then all of a sudden you, you become one of those places. Now, I can grant and regrant to folks through relationships, you know, as long as they got a plan, you know, and as long as we're working together and building trust on, on, on the mission, we have to be able to, to tell our stories. We have to be able to use uh, qualitative and quantitative data to capture our successes and stories and, 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 and victories as well. We're not good at, at, at taking credit, right? We're also taught not to do that. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's ego or it's pride. No, man, we need to do it. We have to do it. Uh, we have to tell the stories of our successes um, because guess what? That's, that's what influences other uh, funders and supporters of the mission. We have to become better storytellers. Yeah, the work that you're doing is amazing. And as someone who's 20 and barely getting into like organizing spaces and what does it mean? Phenomenal thing for me was the fact that you're able to reach out to so many different groups and bring them together, not only for your own ideas, but for a general community to because we all have the same ideas we all want the same thing 
And so I was wondering, like, how are you, how were you able to build those relationships and how have, like, as advice for, like, a younger generation, how can we then kind of be able to code switch and, and get to those places and people that we don't normally talk to, but, like, we should because they are beneficial and they do have the same goal as we do? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. It's a great question. Uh, I have several several responses, and I'll try to be salient. There's no shortcut to organizing, okay? There's no half-stepping. You can't be a paper or a digital tiger if you want to be successful at organizing. If you want to be, re you talk about trying to be transformational, okay? There is no shortcut to it. You have to put in the work. You have to put in the time. You have to also be open to having half your agenda be somebody else's agenda. You have to, you know, because it's the middle ground of where the reciprocity happens. And we also have to put in the time into ourselves into becoming BIPOC warriors and BIPOC allies. And then you can't just say it out loud. There's processes, there's layers, there's levels of consciousness building that has to be intentional and it has to be earnest. Uh, and you have to be honest about it. You know, I, I, I come across, I'll give you one example. You know, there's a lot of, lot of folks that are trying to co-opt, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement right now. You have a lot of unsanctioned, uh, you know, rallies and protests, uh, in many different communities. And there's a lot of folks doing a lot of great work, but there's also, you know, saying you can be sincere, but you can be sincerely wrong, right? You know, Black Lives Matter is, in larger terms, yes, it's more than just an organization, but there is an organization, you know, that, that helped lead the, the brand and integrity of Black Lives. And, you know, I had a gentleman who uh, organized a, a rally in a, in a smaller rural community, called it a Black Lives Matter rally, you know, and he was white. One of the, um, and then, you know, he, he approached me uh, with the intention of validating that worked because some of the African-American brothers and sisters that were at the rally weren't necessarily prepared to, to leave, lead, you know, organizing efforts uh, under the umbrella of Black Lives Matter, you know, officially, right? So he wanted to do it. And I said, no, no, there is an ally to the Black Lives Matter, you know, and there's only been two sanctioned uh, Black Lives Matter rallies in Michigan. I was fortunate enough to be to open both of them uh, with a land recognition, you know, indigenous ceremony and song for each of them. So I'm very, very honored, but also I have a responsibility too to know my place, right? And uh, know that no, the work has to be led by Black Lives in a Black Lives Matter meeting or or an organization or organizing effort or rally it has to be. Otherwise, it's not, right? And it hadn't. Uh, otherwise, it can be done through, you know, rising majority or, or allies of the Black Lives Matter or something, you know, a, a official, right? You know, in order to do that. So I told him, I said, look, you gotta, you gotta put in the work. You gotta do it the right way. Approach it with good intentions. Um, because you're not that, you're not that guy. If you really want to support the Black Lives Matter movement in your area, recruit Black Lives to lead it. Hey, Pete, I was really interested when you started talking about, um, using buses. Um, to go into some of the areas where I'm assuming you're looking at areas that have low voter participation for something like that, you know, and yeah. exactly 
Yeah, uh, absolutely. So, yeah, so we are going to like um, reach out to allies like yourself, Danny, you know, and uh, uh, and find, uh, you know, congregations that want to make sure that their 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 congregants, you know, get counted at, at the polls. We're going to try and get at least 20 or 30 organizations to to co-sponsor the efforts. But we are going to be using, you know, safety in, in, in mind for sure. Yeah, that's what I'm kind of just wondering how that would work because, I mean, in Saginaw, you have a couple districts that are probably the lowest voter turnout in the state, maybe the country. I mean, there, there's some neighborhoods there that are really, really low turnout. And I know there are some churches in the area and some other community centers that would maybe look at um, helping with that effort. I just, you know, thinking about how that looks, um, you know, when the rubber hits the road. Yep, I'll have I'll have details to share probably within the next forty eight hours, and okay. we'll be making a bunch of calls. Uh, I'll be giving you a holler, Daniel, too, um, because uh, again, our our job isn't to to be top down in our approach. You know, we 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 want to bring folks to the table as partners to to organize their own folks. You know, we we'll we'll provide some infrastructure um, and some uh, potential uh, you know resources, but we're all we are still raising money right now to make sure that we can you know, we're moved to scale. Uh, so, you know, if we have funding, you know, to get five, five buses and we'll get five, we, we get organizations to, you know, kick in and, uh, you know, some is part of like their GOTV money, you know, uh, we'll, we'll look at that. We're looking at, uh, uh, you know, the, you know, black Masons and the black fraternities and, and sororities also are, are going to be engaged. Um, so we're uh, in, you know, in the, the Latinx uh, fraternities and sororities too. Um, so we are we are going to be putting a wide net out there over the next few days in order to get strong commitments for resources and funding, uh, but also for commitments to fill fill some buses. Pete, okay. did you just say Latinx? Yeah, you're. <laughs> okay, I just wanted to make sure. I thought maybe I didn't hear that right. That's all. I wanted to use the vernacular you're most comfortable with. Ooh, that hurt. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. I guess that's what I get for trying to be funny. All right. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we're super excited. Uh, and, and when I say that we are going to hit the ground running and are hitting the ground running, we'll have the ability to, we'll have the ability to reach by phone and text 20,000 people in a day. How long would it have taken us before to reach 20,000 people, right? That's 20,000 people with 46 people. If you think about organizing models and outreach using predictive dialing and texting, those cost tens and tens and tens of thousands of dollars. But we have access to them because we're, and we're, and we're paying for them. We have, we have the ability to to reach over 400,000 people in a week. Back back in the day, man, 20,000 people would have been the whole campaign. Yep. That would have been that would have been the whole campaign. And, and even even at that, we would have been like, I don't know, man, 20,000 people, that's a lot of people, you know. But yeah, it's I think it's interesting, you know, that technology has made these things I mean, it's made it easier to actually get hold of that many people, but at the same time, it's created such a glut of information that it's mm -hmm. harder to actually hold people's attention. You know, like there was a time not that long ago, certainly within, well, most of our lives, probably, maybe not Carolina's, but 
um, most of our lives. Like if you actually sent a letter to somebody's house, they freaking read the letter. Like they, they like looked at it. They looked at the flyer or people would put them on their refrigerators and be all like, I don't want to forget that, you know? And so, but now there's so much information like coming at us all the time that even though it's easier to get hold of, you know, 400,000 people, you know what I'm saying? What's the stickiness of the message, I guess, is what I'm, I'm asking. Well, actually, if you guys, if I could do a real quick exercise, you guys take your cell phones out real quick and text to 79606, 79606. And then once we, once we do that, what do we do? Text R-O-C-M-I-V-O-T-E, rock my vote, R-O-C-M-I-V-O-T-E. So we want to encourage everybody that's listening to actually uh, do the same thing so that we can get like an accurate count on how many people are listening to the podcast. <laughs> yeah, did you guys do it? R-O-C, all one word, R-O-C-M-I-V-O-T-E. So now I've actually reached uh, um, 2,008 people today. Can you repeat the number again, Pete? <laughs> uh, R-O-C-M-I-V-O-T-E to 79606. So, you know, what's really interesting is that, you know, coming from Michigan, I realized, I mean, it, in Michigan, it was very hard to get on the mail-in ballot list, right? So I'm really glad to hear that they changed that. But like here in Arizona, which has been voting Republican for decades now, everybody's on the mail-in voter list. I mean, it's just, it's like the way that people vote, right? So it was really kind of a trip to me. But it was even more crazy when Trump started all that mess about how mail-in ballots are like subject to fraud. Because if that's true, then that means that Republicans in Arizona have been fraudulently winning their elections for at least the last 20 years. So I just wanted to point that out. I don't know if anybody cares, but I do. I mean, like redlining and stuff, that's the same thing. Fraudulent voting. I just wanted to talk a little bit about uh, or point out that you you mentioned uh, ex offenders coming from uh, coming home from prison can register to vote right away. Just don't forget that if you make contact of people that are on the inside, they can be one of your best advocates for this. That's a very powerful tool that people underutilize because when they do provide information on the inside of the prisons and the jails, these guys immediately get on the phone with their loved ones and say, hey, I heard about this. You need to join. You need to send me information about it. I want to know. And then they encourage them to vote or to take action. I've seen beautiful things that they've done with, like, for example, um, donating or collecting funds to donate to uh, breast cancer, you know, survivor, for breast cancer research, the Komen Foundation coming from the inside of the prison. So if it's only information that you're looking to distribute for rock or for anything, for getting out the vote, for any of the other things that we have talked about on this podcast, that's a, a underutilized vehicle that people get results from. Um, so if we're talking about result-based and, and uh, so, yeah, even before they come out of prison, they have time on the inside to organize uh, a movement so that they can affect change on the outside. That's more powerful to them than sitting, you know, and taking, waiting till they get home to vote. They can take action now. So just wanted to comment on that. Thank you, Maria, for uh, lifting that up. I am duly noting that too, because I know that as an organization, we, we work with a lot of uh, ex-offenders or returning citizens 
every day. You know, we have a program called Restore Detroit, where we uh, give free eight-week trainings for culinary uh, cooking and uh, bartending classes for free, or serve safe handle um, like food, food handlers licenses. Uh, but we also, you know, we also offer that's actually a 12-week program, and then a 12 another stipend six week for folks that are that are just coming back. We also you know, have case case managers that work with them directly and we include the rock members, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're part of um, our fabric for who our membership is as well. And we're still figuring out pieces that we still need to figure out. So we do have the piece figured out on trying to support them when they get out, but we, we definitely have a lot of work to do to reach out and do outreach while they're still in. It's interesting because we were, you know, I was talking to the Assistant Secretary of State yesterday, uh, and Hester Wheeler, and we were talking about, you know, where, you know, where, where do our, our incarcerated fit into this, into this picture, right? And we we're trying to figure out, you know, how, how can we engage and in, in, in what are our limitations of where we're at, right? And so we were, we were figuring out some of the things that we could do for folks that are in jail, but didn't have a lot of ideas. Uh, for what we could do for folks, you know, that are that are still in. So we'd love to definitely hear more about building that pathway, you know, in these times and after these times, right? Uh, because there there is a lot of there's a, there's a lot of opportunity there that I believe is being overlooked, and we need to we need to check ourselves on on that too. How important is it to vote this this November? I mean, I've certainly sat out some elections. Um, and, you know, I think for very good reasons, I don't regret any of those, but it, it really seems to me like uh, it's important for people to get out uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. One of them might just be for social stability, to be completely honest with you. You know, it, I don't even know if it even necessarily matters who wins in terms of that particular aspect of it. But I think that if, you know, we go through an election cycle where the majority of people, where 70 percent of the people abdicate their right to vote and 30% of the people make the decision. I think that that's going to go a long ways towards promoting some uh, social instability. So, I mean, you know, I'm just kind of wondering what you guys are thinking. Are you guys planning on voting this fall? And maybe we can just kind of wrap it up that way. Does anybody want to take that one on? Pete, I know you're planning on voting. You're harassing people to vote as it is right now. Good for you. I'm voting. I'm voting for sure. You know, I'm totally thinking, I think here in D.C. we're all going to receive our, our vote, our mailing ballot, and then you choose if you go or if you drop it off or if you mail it. So I'll probably fill it out at home and drop it off in one of the voting places. Yeah. But D.C. Is, uh, doesn't really count, you know, so it doesn't really matter because we are now one of the 50 states, so it won't make a difference. <laughs> and this is fully democratic, so, you know. Dang, dude, you came from Puerto Rico to D.C. Man, I was a third-class citizen. <laughs> now I'm a second-class citizen. <laughs> the whole time, bro. Yeah. Issues. <laughs> Issues. Every vote matters. So if you're being counted in the census... Right. I am going for sure. Yeah. If you don't vote, then look at we have all these people who are in the census. These are all our numbers, but only ten percent are voting. Right. You got to yeah. vote. Your vote counts. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely voting. I mean, like I said in a previous episode, I'd vote for a lamppost against, uh, you know, against Trump. So, <laughs> and I'm definitely not voting for. I'm voting definitely against. 
like Ernesto said, man, I mean, even social stability, I mean, I don't think, I don't even want to talk about four more years with the current, what we have now. That's really the main reason. And, you know, maybe it'll position us in, 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 in to get more concessions and stuff. I mean, you know, that's my hopeful take, but yeah, I'm going to vote. I heard that uh, Snyder came out publicly and said that he was supporting uh, Biden so I was like, wow, that gives me um, somewhat of a glimmering hope that we might stand a chance to take back Michigan. I don't want to vote, but I think that I have a responsibility to vote. So I'm still going to vote against, obviously. But yeah. When you say Snyder, you mean Rick Snyder, the former Republican governor of the state of Michigan. Yes, sir. Pendejo, pendejo Republican. Yeah. Number one a-hole himself, yes. So the one who poisoned Flint. Uh, the one who poisoned Flint, yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. The butcher With of the, Flint. An emergency yeah. manager that was from Saginaw, actually. Darnell what's, Early. What's up with yeah. all those Saginaw people, man? I don't know. I could tell you some stories about that guy. Maybe I will on one of That's these podcasts. Another podcast. Snyder gets no redemption from this side. <laughs> None. I That's really what that was, too. His name is Mud. And it will be, uh, but you know, even even Mud can vote. I'm definitely voting, and I'll be honest with you. Like I, I ran several political campaigns and I hadn't even voted before, right? Uh, I was one of those folks, you know. And a lot of the folks, you know, that are you know that are here came from that same, you know, cloth of you know of defiance, of you know not having any faith in the system, right? Uh, that was one of the reasons why, you know, from a very indigenous and revolutionary perspective, it was revolutionary not to vote. But this time, this year, it's revolutionary to vote. And it's revolutionary to vote for the interest of yourselves, the interest of your family. It's, it's revolutionary to fill out the census right now. Fill out the census in a revolutionary way, you know, if you haven't already. Not Latin, not Hispanic. Right. Boom, you get automatically put to the other section. Yeah. And you claim Aslan, you, you claim Anahuac, you know, yep. you, you claim Taino. And guess what? You're counted. Yep. That's what you are. We are not just essential workers we're, we're we're essential to the to the community we're essential to the economy but we also need to become essential voters and that's really what this is about is owning the narrative owning the power of our vote putting value to it when nobody else has if if our if our communities are only voting in the bottom 30 percentile you know that's that's several things you know it means that we don't care enough about the vote or nobody cares enough about our vote so what's it going to be? I haven't missed an election in 27 years, okay, of voting. Not once. I mean, does it really take that much <laughs> to go vote? I mean, honestly. You know, half the time, though, I felt like it was out of spite because, like, I hated one person so much mm-hmm. that I'd go out and vote, vote against them. I don't know. Maybe that's, like, me mentally, like, I got to go vote because I can't stand that fucker, you know? But I don't know. I don't know. Well, well let's so hear it. Alex, a- you didn't say if you were going to vote. Oh, I'm gonna vote. I just said, of course, Alex. <laughs> hey, I'm just getting. I'm just getting everybody down on record. That's all. That's, that's Hell yes, she I is. I think I've been down right then. All right, and then Carol. This will be my first. Down, all y'all are in my system now. Seven nine six. <laughs> yeah, and then Carolina. This will be my first presidential election. My Woo-hoo. first election was the midterm two years ago. So this is my first presidential election, and I'm not excited to vote sure. it's yeah. definitely like <laughs> against but, but I, I don't know my my yeah i think my mentality has always been like why not like you know it's like even if you don't like it even if you don't like the people like why not vote 
that always make it always confuses me why people don't want to vote because i'm mm-hmm. like it takes you know maybe five <laughs> minutes and you can help those like people in your community that can't necessarily vote but also like give voice to them through yourself and so that was always my like so, yeah. real quick there's also another reason why i just remember why i'm it's because um, Texas is gonna get, is increasingly more becoming battleground, and I love the fact yes. of I love the fact of scaring the shit out of the Republicans yes. because yeah, the, the yeah it's the demographic like Republicans yeah the demogra- yeah the demographic comeuppance is coming, so I want to do my part to um, to make it slowly go in a little bit purple again. There once that starts happening, we have other avenues so. The, the state races are real important too. You got to think about that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was just going to say, honestly, it's kind of a pet peeve when people say, well, I'm not going to vote because they're just the same. Look, let me tell you something. You know, one of the subjects we have coming up is my experience with family separation, you know, working at a refugee serving agency. These guys are not the same. Okay. <laughs> the I know Republicans like to say Obama put kids in cages. Listen, the Trump administration instituted the family separation policy and the traumatic effect that has on that's had on kids and families these two guys are not the same i don't care how much you dislike biden or think he's a piece of shit whatever maybe he is but it wasn't democrats that separated families and if nothing else thank you please go out and vote against that all right exactly earlier today issues right We'll talk about it more, you know, when it's that week to do that. But, oh, my God, what I've witnessed is not – they're not the same. Okay. It's not – Yes. All right. Everything that Danny just said. That's right. Hey, that's all we have for today. My name is Pete Vargas, and on behalf of the Dysfunctionals, we want to thank you all for listening. Be sure to leave a comment on our podcast site. to search the Reality Dysfunction on Podbean or like us on our Reality Dysfunction Facebook page. Best of all, share the episode. It's the gift that keeps on giving. Hey, homie, I'm getting tired of dudes just getting over on the rasa. This is for the rasa, rasa, rasa. This is the reality dysfunction. <laughs>